Welcome back to the series on associations in the Greco-Roman world in the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harlan. I'm a prof at York University. We're continuing the discussion of associations, small groups in the ancient world, including Judean and Christian groups. Today's episode turns to the question of where did these associations fit within broader society? In particular today, we look at the city-state, the polis, the Greek city-state in uh, the eastern parts of the Roman Empire, particularly in Asia Minor. And we ask the question of where do associations fit within that context and how can we understand the relationship between associations and that broader civic cultural context. The next episode then turns to the question of how do associations fit in relation to the imperial context, the empire as a whole, that broader cultural sphere. Once again, this podcast series is based upon my own research that has been put out in the form of books if you're interested in reading further. You can find Associations, Synagogues and Congregations, which was published by Fortress Press back in 2003. Then there was Dynamics of Identity in the World of the Early Christians, which was published by Continuum in 2009. And soon, maybe already by the time you're hearing this, there will be a, a volume, a source book collection of primary sources, the inscriptions and in translation for you, so that you can study this material for yourself. That book is going to be called, the same title of this series, Associations in the Greco-Roman World, a source book. That's going to be coming out with Baylor University Press before November 2012. So I hope you enjoy this episode and come back again. What we want to move on to now is looking at where these associations fit within society in the Greco-Roman world. I want to do this sort of comparative study of different associations and where they fit within society. First by looking at the city, then by looking at the imperial context. So the city and then the empire. And try and understand where do these associations, these groups, fit or not fit? How do they integrate themselves or not integrate themselves? So let's talk about associations within the civic context. We've talked about this uh, idea before, and that is that scholarly traditions have been very prominent in analyzing associations. And the tendency in scholarly traditions has been to say that associations are a symptom of decline. In other words, there was the theory that Greek city-states in places like Asia Minor had been in decline ever since Alexander the Great, had been in decline ever since the 300s BCE, and that this decline was political decline. The city-states used to be autonomous, used to be uh, ruling themselves, and that the polis used to be democratic and that gradually lost that with time. So that's the traditional view that speaks of decline, political decline in terms of the city-state's loss of autonomy and its loss of democracy. And so the Hellenistic period and the Roman period are, used to be characterized by scholars as primarily this period of political decline. But along with this theory of political decline went cultural decline. The idea was this. The traditional cults of the gods, say Artemis at Ephesus, is tied in with 
the political autonomy and political livelihood of the polis, of the Greek city-state. And with the decline of the city-state came the decline of culture generally, including the decline of traditional cults. So that's the general gist of that very prevalent scholarly view that we have problems with. So an example of a scholar who speaks of the Hellenistic era in terms of political, the city-state's loss of political power, G.E.M. de Saint-Croix is a famous scholar who has extensively dealt with that idea of the decline of democracy and the decline of autonomy. Now, let me already pick apart a little bit to do with the idea of political decline before we go into the cultural decline that these scholars claim happened. Quite often, the scholars who propose the Hellenistic era as a time of the city-state's decline, of the polis's decline, have an idealistic picture of Athens as the ideal, autonomous, and democratic polis. In other words, there's a bias involved in the scholarship that looks to Athens as the model of what all city-states were. If you don't know, have information about them, you should assume they were like Athens. And then there's an idealization of Athens as a wonderful place where democracy reigned. Just, just to pick at it a little bit, a very easy way to pick at it, is to say this. All women were left out of democracy in the Greek concept of democracy. All slaves were left out of democracy in the Greek concept of democracy. Even that supposed ideal Athens democracy is a very limited democracy. So to use it as the model, first of all, it's not much of a model, and then to use it as the model of the way things used to be in the glory days of Greece is a problem. On top of that, scholars who have spent more time focusing on the inscriptional evidence, people like Louis Robert, who's an expert in epigraphy, who spent his entire life, very long life, I think he lived till he was 90, so for about 70 years of his life he studied epigraphy, and knew just about every inscription that existed from Asia Minor, has an entirely different view of the livelihood of Greek city-states in Asia Minor. He focused on Asia Minor particularly. And the Greek city did not die with Alexander the Great, in his view. You can speak of changes in how the city-states function, but we should not see the loss of total autonomy as the, the, a sign of ultimate decline of the city-states, is the point that they make politically speaking. So already we're starting to see that the idea of even the political aspect of it is problematic. But let's go into the cultural and religious aspect of it. The theory of decline argues that there was a decline in communal feeling as there was a decline in the city. And that with the decline of communal feeling also the decline of the traditional cults that are based on the whole community together doing something and that there was a rise in individualism. So this theory that's problematic, that we should not hold, talks about the decline in communal life and the rise in individualism. Quite often, the scholars in the past who were talking like this were projecting back ideas from the Enlightenment period onto the ancient Greek world. This too is problematic, as you can imagine. Another thing that fits into this is that associations are seen as sort of the beginning of the end of traditional cults. 
that associations are uh, private associations, are personal religion, are individualistic, are voluntary associations that are in some ways at loggerheads with the city-state, that are in some ways going against the grain of what a good Greek city-state would be, and that the type of religion they represent, therefore, is actually working at, at loggerheads with traditional Greek cults. So that's also part of that traditional view that's problematic. What's interesting is the evidence we have for associations can actually be used to illustrate the strength and the livelihood of Greek city-states in places like Asia Minor. In other words, let alone the associations being uh, representative of the breakdown of society and being sort of something that doesn't fit in the Greek city-state, that goes against the grain of how religion worked in the Greek city-state, let alone that, they actually illustrate the livelihood of Greek city-states in Asia Minor when you look at the evidence for associations and more carefully. And that's what I wanted to briefly do before we go to break. First of all, I want to talk about how the activities of associations in political life illustrates the livelihood of the Greek city-states in Asia Minor. One uh, idea that has been common in the past is that the guilds were left out of the organization and decision-making and democracy of the Greek city-states in Asia Minor. In other words, that lower classes were totally left out of uh, the uh, running things in these Greek city-states. One of the passages that has been frequently used to suggest this is in Dio Chrysostom. Here Dio is writing down a speech he gave before the citizen body of Tarsus, southeastern Turkey, Asia Minor. And Dio writes to them and is trying to deal with a situation that's happening there. What was happening was the linen workers, is what he refers to, were being excluded from participation in the political life of the city-state at Tarsus. And he's addressing this situation. Now, scholars in the past who suggest the decline of the city-states and the non-participation of the working class take this to be representative of what all Greek city-states were like. Instead of realizing that Dio is actually upset about this because it's an anomaly that the linen workers, that the working classes are being left out of the decision-making and the democracy of the Greek city-states here in Asia Minor. Let me read you the passage. So, there is a group of no small size which is, as it were, outside the constitution, and some are accustomed to call them linen workers. And at times the citizens are irritated by them and assert that they are a useless rabble and responsible for the tumult and disorder in Tarsus, while at other times they regard them as part of the city. Well, if you believe them to be detrimental to you and instigators of insurrection and confusion, you should expel them altogether and not admit them to your popular assemblies. But if, on the other hand, you regard them as being in some measure citizens, not only because they are resident in Tarsus, but also because in most instances they were born here and know no other city, then surely it is not fitting to disenfranchise them or to cut them off from associations with you. What then, what do you bid us to do? I bid you to enroll them all as citizens. Yes, I do, and just as deserving as yourselves, and not to reproach them or cast them off, but rather to regard them as members of your own body politic, as in fact they are. 
So here you have Dio Chrysostom, an upper-class Roman, arguing that working-class people, linen workers in this case, maybe they're formed into a guild, should be uh, considered a part of the body politic, should be involved in the decision-making of the city. In other words, we're seeing them participating in the politics of democracy as it's defined in the ancient context, as opposed to a declined sort of situation of democracy like we were hearing from those other theories. It happens to be another thing you read earlier in the course further points to the participation of the working classes in uh, democracy, including the guilds. And that is that whole narrative about the silversmiths at Ephesus. The point is when the author of the Acts of the Apostles telling his narrative, he has to make a realistic narrative. And to him it's realistic to portray the silversmiths having considerable power to actually bring together a citizen body to react to that whole thing where Paul was preaching that Artemis is not a real god and all that. Remember that whole thing? They gathered, if you remember, the silversmiths in the theater, which is the place that the citizen body in a democracy gathers to make decisions. When they were gathering there, it was more along the lines of a riot, and one of the civic functionaries, the secretary, remember, addresses the crowd. That's like one of the main, even though he's called a secretary, he's one of the main functionaries of the city. And he addresses the crowd saying, not, you guys don't have a right to make any decisions, not, forget about this and go away. He says to the crowd, look at this is a little bit out of control. Why don't you wait until the next official gathering of the citizen body to raise your concerns? In other words, it assumes that the silversmiths are fully a part of the normal gathering of the citizen body to make decisions within the democratic, sort of ancient democratic context. So what we're seeing here are glimpses of not the total exclusion of the working class, but actual inclusion of the working class to some degree. The class that are involved in the guilds are to some degree involved in the political life of the city-states in Asia Minor, in a way that's showing the livelihood of those city-states, not the breakdown of them. Both those examples coming from the first century CE. 400 years after the supposed beginning of the decline of the polis. Remember that Alexander the Great is considered the sort of watershed mark of the beginning of the end for the Greek city-state and for the democracy that takes place within it in the theories of those scholars that we don't, uh, that we're deconstructing here. So that's just a couple examples of the participation of associations and the populations that belong to the associations within the political life of the city. Remember that the city-state is organized around the people and the council. Remember those two organizations? There's the council, which is the smaller body, and then the people, which is the democratic body of the whole body of citizens. What's interesting is that Hierapolis in Asia Minor, we have an example of the dyers setting up a statue of council personified to honor the council, to honor the civic council of their city. The craft of dyers supervised the erection of the statue of council personified. Glucianios Menandros, son of Glucon, Gaius Julius Lucius Crescens of the Fabian tribe, Gaius Bibios Glycon II, and Antigus, son of Zosimus, arranged to have this set up. So here's an example of participation in a way and sort of showing your belonging in relation to the civic structures, of showing the fact that you, you honor and respect, and you as a guild of dyers actually 
find yourself in concert with the civic council that makes decisions and that plays an important role within the city. So it's an, another indicator of that sort of integration that I'm trying to argue here for these associations. These are not groups that are antagonistic to the city. These are not groups that are necessarily not fitting. They're quite integrated is what I'm arguing. These associations are to some degree, some of them more than others, integrated within the city context and participate within other elements of civic life at the local level. The second point beyond political life that I want to go into is the participation of associations and social networks of benefaction. You guys have already learned quite a bit about this whole cultural context of cities in Asia Minor in this period and throughout the Roman Empire where there is benefaction from the higher-ups in the social hierarchy in return for honors. And that honor, in a way, is the most valuable thing you can get in this cultural system. It's more valuable than money. Well, we see associations again and again and again fully participant in that whole cultural system that is now part of how the city works in the Roman period. One final thing that shows how these groups are integrated and uh, to various degrees is the inscriptions that are um, actual seating reservations or latrine reservations or places reserved for these groups within central cultural institutions of the Greek polis, of the Greek city-state. We have quite a few examples of this and I, I'll, I'll just give you what Let's start with one at Miletus. The theater there is one of the theaters where we have preserved quite a few of the reserved seating. The inscriptions on the seats are still legible and still discernible in this theater in a way that is not always the case at other theaters. But, it, but we do know that most theaters had this sort of idea of reserved seating. What's interesting to note at Miletus is that it's sometimes an upper-class, sort of important civic functionary that has reserved seating for him and his family. So we have cases of that in the seating arrangement. We also, though, have the goldsmiths as a guild having reserved seating for them in the theater at Miletus. What we said about the silversmiths at Ephesus holds for, for Miletus too, right? The, the goldsmiths literally have a place for themselves within the central cultural institution and political institution of the polis. They have reserved seating there. And we have some other groups referred to in these seating arrangement at Miletus. This next group I really want to draw your attention to because it highlights the fact that although Judeans may be odd in respect to their rejection of the Greek and Roman gods, and in some ways might be viewed as atheists sometimes by some people. Nonetheless, they too have a place for themselves within the cultural life of the cities where they live. Remember that the theater is the gathering place of the political citizen body. The theater is the cultural gathering place for watching the theater. It's also the gathering place for other cultural events alongside the goldsmiths, alongside upper-class civic functionaries is reserve seating for the Judeans and the God-fearers. Now there's some doubt as to how we should interpret the reference to God-fearers here. Sometimes God-fearers can just be an attribute you're attributing to yourself. So it could be the Judeans who are also God-fearers, referring to their own God, to the Judean God, that they're fearers of their own God. It could also be, though, 
Judeans and Gentiles who are attracted to the Judean God and who associate with the Judeans and who actually belong to and gather with the Judean association, Admalias. Gentiles who are worshipping the Judean God alongside other Judeans. But the point for us here, though, is Judeans, a minority, minority group in some respects, a group that's on the edges in some respects, is nonetheless in, has a place for itself in a central cultural institution of the Greek city. To me, this is symbolic. This one stone there in the theater of Miletus tells you a whole lot about the potential for immigrant groups and for cultural minorities, despite their oddity, despite the ways in which they're different, to nonetheless find a place for themselves within cultural life in the, in the polis, in the city-state. So to me, that's what that evidence really points to. Let me give you one further example of Judeans being integrated within a cultural institution. The Bath Gymnasium, by the time you get into the Roman period, has been combined together into a, a sort of architectural combination in Asia Minor. So that there's not the baths and then the gymnasium, it's the baths gymnasium. It's a complex. It's sort of like the YMCA with everything together. Many of the major city-states of Asia Minor have a bath gymnasium as one of their central cultural institutions because it's there that education takes place. It's there that the competitions of wrestling and that type of thing takes place. It's also there that people gather for other purposes, including that we have evidence that sometimes associations use the rooms in a bath gymnasium complex to have their meetings, rent out the rooms, right? So it's, it's an important sort of center of activity, social life and cultural life in the Greek city-states of Asia Minor, the bath gymnasium. The bath gymnasium complex at Sardis is particularly interesting in this respect. By the time we, got, we get to the third century CE, one of the main rooms in the Bath Gymnasium complex there is the synagogue. The Judean gathering, the Judean synagogue, gathers together in the Bath Gymnasium complex and has reserved for them a whole hall within the Bath Gymnasium complex in Sardis. Once again, this is pointing towards Judeans, despite the oddity of being monotheists in a polytheistic society, despite the fact that they may be disliked by some Greeks and Romans, despite the fact that once in a while there may be violence against them because they refuse to worship Artemis or whatever the gods are, nonetheless, in some other respects, are finding a place for themselves here. This sets up a potential for followers of Jesus to likewise, despite the oddity of this, these groups, despite the fact they're disliked, to find a place for themselves because remember in the first century and into the second century and maybe even beyond in many cases the groups of Jesus followers would be viewed within the realm of Judean culture if they were recognized they might be recognized as an odd Judean group so if Judeans in the diaspora already are integrated to some degree maybe better in one city than they are in another city maybe having problems in one city, but not in another, but nonetheless are integrated in some cities, that sets up the potential for Christian groups to be, have a similar dynamic of how they relate to culture around them, of how they fit within the city despite their, the fact they don't fit in other respects. They refuse to engage in sacrifice. They refuse to worship the Greek and Roman gods. They don't fit in that respect. They're not going to fully participate 
in the festivals, are they? But in other respects, they find a place for themselves within the culture. There's a range of possibilities here for cultural minorities. Some cities, cultural minorities like Jesus followers or Judeans might be totally ostracized. Some cities, maybe. Alexandria is a good case where there's constant battles between Judeans and Greeks in Alexandria. But other places where Judeans are more fully integrated and maybe other immigrant groups more fully integrated within life in those cities. Some cities where groups of Jesus followers are more integrated. Other cities where they're more ostracized, abused, and sometimes murdered. So this whole picture of a spectrum of possibilities of integration is helpful to keep in mind. So that associations generally are quite well integrated within the city is what I've been arguing. And they actually illustrate the livelihood of the city. They're, they're not at loggerheads with the city's purposes. Some of the associations, the minority group associations, at times are running into problems with culture around them, are having negative relations with outsiders. But sometimes they're finding a place for themselves more fully.